Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everybody in between. It's the first time I've said that in 2024. Indeed, yes. And uh, I'm back. I'm well. For those of you who don't know, we were supposed to do an episode last week, but uh, I had COVID over Christmas and was quite ill. The worst bit, Ben, it led to a kind of ear infection. So I went deaf in my left ear and it's still a little bit deaf, but it's better than it was. But that was quite freaky. That's not great. I would have said, apart from that, the worst bit was when I messaged you on Christmas Day and you said you were having spaghetti bolognese. Yes, which I couldn't taste. I felt really <laughs> bad for you yeah, for that. Yeah, well, uh, luckily we managed to do a shop just before it hit. So we, at least we had food in the house. But um, yes, tasteless spaghetti bolognese, not because of the cooking, just because of the COVID, uh, was not the greatest. But I just wanted to say uh, a big thank you to everyone, all the Patreons and people on Facebook and wherever who sent me some lovely get well soon messages and uh, virtual hugs uh, really cheered me up actually really really did that you know when you're at your low point feeling a bit rough and you've got stuff coming through so apologies we didn't do an episode last week but we're we're back I'm kind of I'd say physically I'm kind of 80% my ears probably at 50% but good enough I think we'll do this one when we're not on the rowing machine yeah exactly <laughs> we'll just sit down for it well, for the first one of this year, Ben, um, I've been thinking, or I've, over the last few weeks, in fact, I've been thinking about our TQM Tulpa project. Oh, yes. Now, for listeners who don't know, this is a project we launched a few months ago with the ambition of trying to manifest or bring a fictional character into the real world. Our case, we chose Sherlock Holmes. Um, and for those new to this, a tulpa, basically... Well, I've got a dictionary definition, which is is believed to be an autonomous consciousness which also exists in a self-imposed hallucinatory body, which is usually of your choice. A tulpa is entirely sentient and in control of its opinions, feelings and movements. Basically, if you can manifest a tulpa, you become a tulpamancer because manifesting a tulpa is called tulpamancy. We've got a couple of tulpamancers in our audience. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So for, for our project, which we launched a few months ago, we asked people to try and think about Sherlock Holmes, maybe even try and enlist his help in solving mysteries, uh, in order to see if we could imagine this fictional character into existence. Now, both you and I, Ben, have had some weird things happen, mainly coincidences, since we launched this. For me, the one that sticks with me is the first day we launched the project or published the episode, I went to get my hair cut and I ended up standing outside a barber's, barber's called Sherlock Combs. Sherlock Combs in Tame, yes. Yeah. Um, I also enlisted Sherlock's help in finding a lost corkscrew, which uh, which weirdly has disappeared again. Has <laughs> it really? Yes. Can't find it now, but it did come back. Um You've had a couple, haven't you? You had a couple of things happen. I remember you had the smell of um, smoke. I, and stuff. I had the smell of smoke, which was very, very peculiar, sort of coming through the garden around that time. And then I had a gentleman out of nowhere come and tell me about his briar pipe. Oh, that's right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd never spoken to him before in my life. And he came up and for some reason started speaking to me about this pipe that he had in his pocket and as he took it out i said i recognize that that very much looks like and he said 
Sherlock Holmes's pipe? I said yes, he said, and then he started telling me the story of how it wouldn't really be, but it was from the person who drew him and all the stuff that we know about. Right. But yes, that was the second one. But then other people that I know in my personal life who listen to the show, they've had experiences. Kath and Nicola, they've both had things. Yeah, we've had a lot of great listener results, haven't we? In fact, it's their kind of results. Many of them have blown our achievements out of the walls. Oh, they right? really have, yeah. Again, like you mentioned, there's been lots of listeners out there who've had um, random coincidences around Sherlock Holmes. You know, people listening to our podcast and then hearing something about Sherlock on another podcast or on the TV or lots of examples of people listening to our podcast flicking on the TV and there's Hand of the Baskervilles on. Yeah, yeah. But what we were really aiming for were actual sightings of Sherlock. And as we've gone on, that seems to have started to happen. We've had listeners seeing people in deerstalker hats. Kath, I think, saw somebody in a deerstalker, right? That's right. We've had ghostly sightings of Sherlock at the end of a bed. But probably the pinnacle was from a listener called Faye, who was shook up by seeing a person in a deerstalker hat and full Sherlock outfit standing opposite her at a pedestrian crossing. Now, interestingly, her husband couldn't see him, but Faye crossed the road and Sherlock was walking towards her she glanced away for a fraction of a second and he disappeared. It's so weird. It is incredibly strange. And I think it's one of those where you kind of, it's it's um, temptingly paranormal because of all the things, you know, like her husband couldn't see it and he disappeared. It might just be that there's a very swift gentleman who likes cosplaying as Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> That's possible. Yeah. But I'd like to think that she's a very good Tulpomancer. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, uh, in my mind, it makes her our star Tulpomancer so far. And I thought I would go trawling to see if there are any academic papers on the subject, because we do love them. I wanted to try and understand exactly what we might have created with the TQM Tulpa project. Yeah, have we been doing something dangerous? Yeah. Well, I have found a wealth of material, far more than I thought I would. I started with a paper called, here we go, Personality Characteristics of Tulpamancers and Their Tulpas. Oh, gosh. That's a real scientific paper. That's a paper. It's by Anna Martin... Bailey Thompson and Stephen Lancaster of Bethel University. This paper starts by pointing out that Tulpamancy has its roots in Tibetan Buddhism, which we've touched on before. But modern iterations of Tulpamancy were initially inspired by the likes of Twilight Sparkle, Fluttershy, Applejack and Princess Luna. Now, growing up as I did with a younger sister... Applejack was the name of a My Little Pony. Correct. Oh, really? No way. Yep. Those names are obviously, if you're obviously not a fan of the show, you won't know them, but they're all characters within the TV series My Little Pony. Now, according to this academic paper, Telpomancy was revitalised by bronies. Bronies are adult male fans of My Little Pony. Ah, I didn't know that name. I was trying to work out what it might be. Oh, like bros and ponies. Bronies, bronies. right, nice, okay. So online communities of bronies began trying to create tulpas of their favourite My Little Pony characters. Oh, that's fun. That's good. So they could interact with them, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Tulpamancy then kind of resurged and spread to other online groups and character creation. 
And by 2017, it was estimated that the online community of Tulpamancers had grown to over 10,000 people. Good grief. And they would generally meet on sites, the ones you'd expect, like Reddit, but also uh, sites like tulpa.info. Right, okay. Now, some people might say talking to or seeing imaginary people or characters might be a sign of mental illness. And I was surprised to find that even the American Psychiatric Association had looked into the phenomena. Okay, okay. So they say, while the experience of tulpamancers could fit diagnostic criteria, such as the presence of multiple personalities, delusions or auditory hallucinations, there are reported advantageous qualities of tulpamancy which leads to a question as whether their experience results, results in significant distress or impairment. So they're not really coming down either way, but they're saying, well, it doesn't have to be a mental illness, which I thought was quite interesting that they are saying, well, it could be beneficial, doesn't mean that you're delusional or that you've got multiple personalities, and that's the American Psychiatric Association. Well, when you, when you think about it, there's quite a lot of like well-balanced characters have... Uh, sort of fictional uh, or or made up friends um you were just reminding me there like i was i was for some reason i was reading calvin and hobbes this morning but that oh, is right, cool. a typical example of yeah, a yeah. child and their imaginary friend yeah yeah um but later on in life people end up you know um talking to what they might you know their dog um, a dead spouse, something like that, mm. which is also sort of feels like it fits in the same space, and that's considered healthy. Yeah. So I don't see why it should be a bad thing. No, in- indeed. And in fact, we will come on to childhood imaginary friends in a minute. Um, so yes, there have been some studies that seem to indicate that tulpamancy can be beneficial to those who practice it. These studies include... Okay, we've got a pronunciation coming up. <laughs> I feel like I should do a tongue roll. <laughs> yeah. Uh, VCR from 2016 and Isla from 2016, just for those reference geeks out there. (laughs) I can hear the keyboards tapping now. (laughs) These studies found that tulpamancers often report receiving help from their tulpas. 91% of participants in these studies indicated that their tulpa had a positive impact on their life. 9% reported a neutral impact and no one reported a negative impact. Oh, that's good. Asked if their tulpa had an impact on their social life, 47% said positive impact and 49% said neutral impact. I tell you what, if you've turned the My Little Pony into a tulpa, you are going to want to take that to a party. You really are, aren't you? Absolutely. Arriving on Applejack. Amazing. Well, it's interesting you say that because what is really fascinating, in one of these studies, the person conducting the research got to interview some of the participants' tulpas. Oh, come on. Yes. How? How? Uh, well, I think I think they were probably channeling it through their the tulpamancer. So we're talking like Derek Akura with Sam. I, I, I assume. Okay. There wasn't much detail. Um, but there were some amazing quotes from the tulpas themselves, including one that said, I am more relaxed and calm in many situations compared to my host. While he may stress in a situation, I'll be calm and help him overcome it. Ah, how very interesting. Very much like, as I referenced there, like an emotional support dog. Yeah, exactly. 
Another tulpa said, while my host tends to think in terms of black and white, right and wrong, pure logic, etc., I seem to be able to think in terms of empathy and emotions. So these are becoming yin to the yang of the of the of what they call yeah. it's a host, right? That's what yeah, or allowing the host in some way to express a facet of their personality that's not coming out, maybe. Right, I see. Now, the paper, as you mentioned, does go on to draw parallels with the creation of tulpas and that of children creating imaginary friends. Now, that seemed perfectly logical as I read it, but I'd not made that connection before. I probably should have, but I didn't really think about imaginary friends as a kid might be kind of connected in some way to tulpas. Did you have one, though? No, no, maybe that's why. Yeah, I did, and I remember it being as real as real. Really? Can you remember the name? Yeah, because it's it was a yak called Yak. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> he genuinely was a yak. Yeah, he was a yak. He was a yak, and uh, he liked to round up sheep when we went on dog walks. Did you get rid of him by saying "yakety yak, don't come back"? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I didn't. But I, but I remember my parents getting really. Not frustrated, but kind of like sighing deeply when when we went out for a meal or anything. I insisted that Yak had his own plate. Right, okay. And of course, Yaks are vegetarian. So <laughs> insisting that there was a plate of vegetables for a Yak. I was quite a precocious four-year-old. Yeah, you, you, we could have asked for hay. That would have been even weirder, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> so there are a lot of themes that come out in the research uh, into adult tulpamancers and children with imaginary friends. Um they do share some similarities. Certainly, children generally describe their imaginary friend as providing companionship, improving their lives, helping with problem solving and providing comfort. And this kind of tallies with adult tulpamancers' relationships with their tulpas. So those are the things that are shared between childhood imaginary friends and tulpas. But there is one big difference in the research between the experience of children with imaginary friends and adult tulpamancers and their tulpas. To quote the paper, While the experience of having a tulpa and having an imaginary friend have some similarities, one key differentiating factor between the two is that children possess an understanding that their imaginary friend is pretend, while hosts understand their tulpas to be autonomous, sentient beings. Okay, that's... Yeah, that makes sense. I understand that. Although in some ways, intuitively, you'd think it might be the other way around, wouldn't you? But no. That actually, you know, as a child, you might believe it's real. But they're saying through the research, most children, at least, who have an imaginary friend know it's imaginary. Yes. Whereas tulpamancers do put a level of, no, this is a, I've created a sentient entity. But I think that's with children, it's... um it's an extension of the imaginary playground that they live in, I would imagine. Mm, I mean, yeah. you don't play with a toy tractor thinking this is a toy tractor. You think of it as, you know, a tractor that's ploughing a miniature field and whatever goes on in that is sort of happening in your head. Yeah. So when I had a imaginary yak, I'm pretty sure I didn't imagine that my parents had raided the local zoo. I was just like, yeah, yeah. it would be cool to have a friend who was a yak so let's pretend we've got a friend who's a yak. But I guess when you get older, you feel like the power of being able to manifest things, you go, well, why couldn't you manifest something? Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I can see the logic. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, this kind of almost belief that the tulpa is sentient 
um, it's kind of one of the core features of Tulpomancy. And it is distinct from more sociable, acceptable constructs of like an imaginary friendship. Uh, this distinction of realness is noticeable because the host's perception that their helper is extrinsic rather than intrinsic. The tulper is seen as a real individual with an outside perspective rather than the host's own self-talk or simply a figment of their imagination. Basically, Ben, a tulper manson, you need to believe, or at least want to believe, that the tulper is a sentient independent creation rather than a figment of your imagination yeah yeah you need that to make it work by from what i've seen okay now one researcher puts this down to the adult tulpamancer's loneliness and social anxiety but i thought i thought that was a bit of a lazy conclusion because i'm not sure it's a good enough answer you know there are lots of ways you can uh, tackle that but I mean, there are lots of children who can be lonely or socially anxious. So why would there be that big differentiation between the adult and the child version of it? It doesn't make sense to me. No, it wouldn't. And it also doesn't explain those people who accidentally manifest a tulpa. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I did wonder, if you look at it from a psychological perspective, whether the tulpa manson needs to believe the tulpa is real in order to make it work. And it reminded me, it's a reminded me of almost you know when we did remote viewing and it was like clearing your mind not censoring yourself reminded me of that process that there's something in the creation of a tulpa that seems very similar to that remote viewing Mm. uh, way Mm. of doing things so this first paper's conclusion was that tulpa creation was a way of coping with mental struggles such as anxiety stress loneliness or social awkwardness and I mean, what I often find frustrating with many academic papers that look into these topics is that they don't try and explore them for themselves. You know, unless you get stuck into the research, how can you really understand what's going on? You've got Mm. to try it out, right? Well, I found another paper where one academic started their thesis by doing just that, and the results were surprising. The paper is titled, A Time for Tulpas... Technology, language, and the study of religion. A time for tulpas next on BBC One. Yeah. The thesis was written by Nicholas John Steger in 2016 while he was at Harvard University. Wow, that's high-end. High-end stuff. Yeah. So as part of the paper, in addition to interviewing tulpamancers, Nicholas tried to create his own tulpa as part of the experiment. That is... That is great thinking. That is good thinking. And it I, is. And it, I, I found it because I was thinking, well, we've done it. Somebody else may have tried a project like this. So Nicholas started to create their own tulpa by following an online how-to guide created by Mythos. The guide is called May the Force Be With You, a tulpa creation guide. Now, you can Google this and find it. Um, it's in a really weird format, so you might have to kind of experiment around to find it. But it's really interesting, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more in a minute. Now, the first step detailed in the guide is known as tulpa forcing. So I guess that's why I made the force be with you, is where the paper got it. Oh, from. I see, I see. So this is sitting down and visualising or attempting to visualise a component of your tulpa's personality, so appearance, etc., I guess this is similar to our project in that we wanted people to spend some time thinking about Sherlock. Do you remember we said spend a few minutes a day? Absolutely, yes. 
Now, interestingly, the guide does go into some detail about, about what you might like to think about in terms of your tulpa's personality, including influences such as culture, family, peers, experiences, genes, drugs, <laughs> it says. And I was thinking, when it comes to Sherlock, there's quite a lot to work with there, isn't there? Yeah. You know, you've got the is. family connection, Mycroft, you've got, you know, there's a drug connection, there's all kinds of stuff. Yes, there. yes. Um, the guide also talks about a pre-creation or greeting stage. Now, the advice for this is sit down in a comfortable position, close your eyes and begin to imagine your tulpa. Think about some of the tulpa's traits with key words. So, you know, it could be intelligent, kind, just kind of think about those words. Once you've got a feel for it, say the tulpa's name and begin to talk to it. But don't expect it to talk back at this stage. So it's almost you're almost bringing it into existence. That's the way I read that bit. Now there's another process known as the personality stage. And this involves writing down between 15 to 45 traits of your tulpa. You can then take these traits one by one and expand them out, go into more detail of how they apply to your tulpa's personality, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, right. So this is a different level. We'll come back to this, but okay. there's a different level. After you've achieved that, the next part of the process is known as visualisation. For this part, you need to sit down, get comfortable, keep your back straight and your hands in front of you motionless. Close your eyes and breathe slowly. So that's very kind of yoga-y, meditation-y, isn't it? You then imagine you are sitting in front of your tulpa. Imagine you are both in a comfortable setting. Again, focus the tulpa's appearance, maybe its mannerisms. Part three of the process is smell, which is interesting when we kind of think of... Yeah, the smoke, yeah. Yeah, and this will help the visualisation. Part four is movement and expression, how the tulpa moves and what expressions it makes. Part five is emotions stroke sentience, which really involves talking to your tulpa, which may or may not give you a response, and you shouldn't try and force one, it says. <laughs> it gave this for a great tip. It said, one tip that is given is to make sure you don't bore your tulpa. <laughs> 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 oh, that's wonderful. I love the idea of bringing something into this world that's like, God, man, I'm off. Yeah, God, he, yeah, go, he, tedious. Go, he goes on that one. He, <laughs> him and his bloody corkscrew. <laughs> you got another one? Just open the bottle with that. <laughs> Step six is known as imposition. Now, Ben, if you get into this stage with your tulpa, you're really getting quite skilled as a tulpa mancer is described as getting even closer to your tulpa. I read it as like you're fully engaged in a two-way relationship with the tulpa you've created. So I guess in Faye's example, it's like the next level on from Faye's. Faye saw it, but she didn't really interact with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. She went quite a lot of the way down, though. No, that's quite... Yeah, she's done really well. That's amazing. What's quite interesting about Faye, because I remember in some of her correspondence... Out of all the people we've uh, we've engaged with in this and ourselves, I think she's one of the people who took it most seriously and did try really hard. Yeah. So it feels a bit like she put in the work and she got the result. Yes. Right. Right. So if you can get all that, all those processes sorted, you've cracked it. Now, don't worry out there if you've not been taking notes. We'll come back to the guide at the end of the podcast. For now, 
Ben, let's return to the academic paper from Harvard. So the author of this paper used this online guide to try and create their own tulpa. Now, interestingly, they also went down a literary route for the inspiration for their tulpa. But I guess as they went to Harvard, Ben, they went a little more, little more highbrow than us. Um, they chose the American novelist Ernest Hemingway. Oh, that's still a good one, though. Yeah. Yes, a sort of uh, a, a character that isn't going to be terrifying. Yeah. So in terms of following the guide, the author of the paper started by writing down some of the traits of their character. These included stubborn, hard-headed, loyal, terse and brutally honest. Interestingly, as the guide suggested, Nicholas, the Harvard academic, started by talking to his tulpa as Hemingway. So he writes, I will talk to Ernest and then I would think of something he would say and pretend that he had said it back. Rinse and repeat until slowly I would not have to think hard at all before Ernest would reply until he seemed then to reply on his own. Now, you see, that is the sort of thing that a good author might do. So we've, we've covered the comic book creator who created a tulpa. But if you're writing um, the same character again and again, yeah. it's probably going to become that automatic, isn't it? Yeah. Which makes it possible for you to write the books with stories that surprise you. I hear that a lot from authors. The story that I wrote surprised me. Yeah, almost and taking control. It took control yes, of the pen or the typewriter. That's right, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, Nicholas then moved on to the next step, trying to visualise Hemingway. He says, The time I felt Ernest Hemingway as most independent of my own consciousness was when he seemed to answer almost spontaneously of his own volition. And that was right before I went to sleep, when I was lying in my bed thinking about what I needed to do tomorrow, or what time I needed to wake up, or a different decision. When instead of figuring it out myself, another voice would pop into my head, a voice I was used to coddling along, but now it seemed oddly self-reliant. Of course, once I became fully aware of Ernest's independence, I would perk up a bit with what he might say in that moment. After a few weeks of this, I decided to suspend creating Ernest. I felt with school starting up, I would not have a proper amount of time to dedicate to his creation. OK. So how long did he do this for? I think it was for a few weeks. He said, um, but I did come away with an intense respect for tulpamancers. Trying to make a tulpa was hard. It takes time and commitment to make a tulpa. And since I came at it relatively sceptically, it would have taken me more time and commitment than the average person. And does he speculate on the mechanics of it and what it is that's really happening? He doesn't really go into detail. I mean, what... He, it's almost as if he says, I've created something that's independent, but I don't know whether that's a psychological process or anything more. It doesn't really go into it. I think if he was pushed from my reading of the paper, he kind of feels it was a psychological process, but a bit like some of the stuff that we've covered in the past, there's a bit of him that goes, but there is something more going on here which I found fascinating, especially as he comes it at it from a sceptical perspective. It is. I can see how this intersects with mental health, though, because you can sort of see some aspects of, like, if you go too far into that, you become, you get into the world of multiple personalities and right, things right. like that. Yeah. But if you go the other way, you sort of turn into, um, you know, almost, well, I suppose that is what Jekyll and Hyde is. But 
Um, I suppose I was thinking about people who play a character in person. Um, I remember um, a friend of mine was at um, a talent reading of um, a new quite scary drama and the particular talent they mentioned does this character acting where they insist on being called the name of that character and the whole day they spend in that character's influence. And then at the end of it, they come back out as the actor and they sort of like, oh, apologies if I was rude, you know, it's just how it goes when when you're being this person. I'm trying to be a serial killer. When you're method acting. When you're method acting, that's it. And um, you, I could see... I suppose if you're really skilled at that, you can allow yourself to be that character that the writer has imagined for you on the page. It's reminded me a bit of... Um, did you ever see the documentary about the making of Jim Carrey doing oh, Andy yes. Kaufman? Man on the Moon, Man yeah. Man on the Moon, yeah. Where, you know, he that was what happened to him. He almost became Andy Kaufman, even to the level where people had to call him Andy on set. That's right. Didn't he take Kaufman's son out and his son said... It was like going out with my dad yeah. for a drink. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there was, you know, and even I think he met Kaufman's family at his home, but he still didn't come out of character, which they said was weird for them. But again, like you said, it was like they found it reassuring and it was like, yeah, just like being Andy in the room. So, you know, it's interesting you bring up that analogy with kind of method actors because I think the Jim Carrey one is an extreme example of almost maybe he can he created an internal tulper of Kaufman in some ways, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a really nice way of looking at it. So it's either you're creating a sort of an independent algorithm operating in your own head or you're creating something paranormal and physical in the external world. Yeah. And maybe the difference between them ain't so great. Well, maybe it's a mixture of both as well. Right, yeah, Which yeah. Which made me think... Well, this academic Nicholas, he moved on to interviewing Tolper Mansers, uh, who mainly, as we've mentioned, also uh, mainly consist of online communities, you know, subreddit groups, etc. What I found really interesting in terms of what characters people chose to create Tolpers from. So there were many examples of anthrop I can never say this word, anthropomorphic animals. There was a lot of characters based on TV or video games. Um, including one I thought would have been a good one for a we could have done instead of Sherlock. There, there was a Doctor Who tulpa, which I think could be very useful. Oh, that's nice. What, they actually manifested Doctor Who himself? Y- yeah, yeah. Oh, I wonder which one. Oh, that's a good question. Well, we'll come on to that, because there oh, is okay. an interesting point about that. There was also another one of um, somebody created a tulpa of Toothless from How to Train Your Dragon, <laughs> which I thought was quite interesting. That's a nice one. Um, but yeah, what's interesting is that in conducting these interviews, Nicholas realised there were more than just fantasy imaginary characters. To quote him, he said, It would be incorrect to think of these tulpas as merely a form of fan fiction, a way to interact with a favourite character. Rather, the tulpas develop into beings unique from their seed characters. As I described with my own process of developing Ernest Hemingway, I, burst his, I based his personality on Hemingway's, but had I succeeded in developing him into a full tulpa, he would have certainly been different from that literary figure. Okay, yeah. Yes, because it's um, you couldn't know the full man. No. Uh, additionally, the term tulpamancy is a catch-all term for the practice of creating and interacting with tulpas. A tulpamancer simply is one who does tulpamancy. 
While these terms may sound somewhat sinister, sounding like necromancy, for example, this is only a byproduct of the suffix mancy, which descends from the Greek mantia to divine, but there is nothing sinister about it. So Nicholas's paper goes on to look at why online communities engaged in creating tulpas and why it seems to be becoming more popular. He basically makes the argument that the internet and social media in many ways is making us detached from the actual world and reducing the number of real-life relationships and interactions we have. He believes that paradoxically, in some way, our interaction with AI characters, what the paper described as sociable robots, which I like that description, or using avatars to communicate with other people through avatars, and people create their own tulpas is in some way filling the gap of us feeling more isolated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a good quote from uh, author Sherry Turkle, who wrote a book titled Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. They say, sociable robots and online life both suggest the possibility of relationships the way we want them. Just as we can program a made-to-measure robot, we can reinvent ourselves as comely avatars. So this paper makes the connection with tulpas in some way creating a tulpa is a cross between a sociable robot and creating an avatar of yourself. That makes a lot of sense in my head, yes, I can see that. Because we've we've got a lot of um, talk at the moment about... um, like you know things like sex robots yep and and how like humans they are and also that uncanny valley thing so a, a thing that you conjure up is less likely to have the uncanny valley element to it than right. a, than a robotic thing yeah. yeah yeah i guess creating a friend the way you want them to be but also has some level of free and independent thinking and actions is is quite an interesting proposition isn't yeah it? yeah Now, this paper also covers some other themes, such as filling the gap created by the decline in religious beliefs. So I guess, rather than praying or talking to God, the Tulpa fills that role, certainly in the West, where the focus has shifted more from religious beliefs to logic. Maybe, I guess, the Tulpa fulfills some of that need that was previously fulfilled by religion. Yeah, good point. A couple of things that really struck me from this paper... How the author, who was a sceptic, decided to try and create their own Telper based on Ernest Hemingway. And it felt as if first they were just fantasy role-playing with it, but then they came to feel, even though they'd not physically manifested it, that their Telper became more real, more independent, more sentient, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, as I said, the author wasn't saying it was paranormal or magical, They didn't really make a judgment other that there was possibly some kind of psychological process at work. But I'm always interested, Ben, when people come at these things from a sceptical viewpoint and come away thinking, well, something more is might be going on here. And that's what I got from that paper. I like those scientific papers where they sort of go, they go through the actions but leave you to come to your own conclusions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, we had that first paper that seemed to say that tulpas were more about people's mental health than anything else. But the author of that second paper seemed to feel that when they created a tulpa, that there was something else going on. So at this point, Ben, I felt I needed to go back to the original source of all this. Not My Little Pony, but Tibetan Buddhism. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 
<laughs> Damn, you wanted me to go down the pony route, didn't I you? I did, really, yes. I love Applejack. So if we go with the first paper's conclusion that it's about mental, you know, health, loneliness, social awkwardness, I just kept thinking, how does that fit in with, you know, Buddhism? Because <laughs> you wouldn't think that of, you know, a Buddhist monk or somebody, you know, there are searches for enlightenment. It's not mm. like they're socially awkward. And I also struck me that this practice has been going on for millennia in the Buddhist tradition. So I delved into some other papers. There's one by Arthur Giuliani titled Simply on Tulpas. It's probably the shortest academic paper <laughs> title we've ever come across. Yeah, yeah, they've, they've heard the show and they, they realise they need to keep it down, yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, this paper states that for Tibetan monks, Tulpa is considered a fully real metaphysical being. The creation oh. of such a being is seen as proof of the illusory nature of reality and the monk's capacity as a practitioner to cut through the delusions of reality. I like that. In the Tibetan worldview, mental energy and physical energy are considered to be part of the same system. And as such, practices of mental concentration can result in physical changes in the world, such as the appearance of tulpas or other phenomena that would be considered supernatural in the Western context. So I, I thought that was interesting. You know, the Buddhist, the Buddhist angle seems to be more spiritual and we might think of it as supernatural, but I guess from a Buddhist perspective, it's just a natural part of being rather than anything. Yeah. Super, supernatural is the wrong word for it. Really natural is probably a better <laughs> word for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. The creation of a tulpa can happen either as a result of great mental effort, and this next bit reminded me of Faye, or a spontaneous event. So I think she maybe had a connection of both of those, working on it a little bit and then had a spontaneous event. The time required to create such an entity can be traced to the skill of the practitioner in exerting mental concentration. Now this paper, Ben, also refers to a book we've mentioned on the podcast before, by anthropologist Alexandra David Neal. She wrote a book called Magic and Mystery in Tibet. She was, you know, quite an adventurous anthropologist who, I think, I don't know if it was 40s or 50s, she went to Tibet and spent a lot of time there and kind of embraced herself in the culture. Now, she had a strange experience when she met a Buddhist monk in Tibet and she perceived a, f a fiery being standing behind him. Upon telling this to the man, he confirmed that he'd been visualising a deity with the same appearance. And what David Neal saw in front was in the form of a tulpa. So she basically sensed and saw this monk's tulpa. That's... See, I've heard this... I've heard these monks um, manifesting things before, but I hadn't heard any sort of first-hand accounts. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. And now, after a certain point in the creation process, tulpas are understood to gain autonomy and to be able to act on their own. There is another narrative the author David Neal relates in which an old master, this is really fascinating, was expected to participate in a royal ceremony. The master was aware of his imminent death and created a tulpa in his likeness. The tulpa was then sent to the ceremony in his place and all that were present were um, convinced that it was actually the guy who'd attended himself. That's lovely. There's um, there's a few stories of very religious men sort of bilocating. Yeah. Is it I Pedro, 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 yes, Pedro um, Pyre, is it? Yes, that's it, yes, yes. For, um, he used to conduct ceremonies in different places at the same right. time, right? 
Every time you say Pedro, I think of Jimenez, yeah. the delicious sherry. Yeah. That makes me bilocate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah bilocate Spain. <laughs> yes. Well, David um, Neal, the author of the, the book on Tibet, goes further to describe her own experience in creation of a tulpa. After staying in Tibet for numerous years, she undertook a multi-month meditation practice which allowed her to manifest a tulpa. The being took the appearance of a short, jovial monk who would periodically appear near her on various occasions. While she was able to gain a visual presence of the tulpa, tactile and verbal presence was relatively non-existent. She described the tulpa's appearance as changing over time, becoming more slender. This change happened outside of her control. Eventually, David Neal chose to remove the tulpa from her field of experience, However, this was accomplished only after another few months of mental practice. Now, David Neal's experience foreshadowed many of the obstacles and features of modern tulpamancers. So, I found a good description at tulpa.io of why Buddhists create tulpas. Because there is a quote, you know, you don't just do it because you can. No, no. So, the concept of tulpas stems from Tibetan Buddhism, where the word tulpa originates and is actually a verb, a practice through which monks would primarily create tulpas to overcome attachments such as phobias and desires. The monk would create entities, possibly formless or in the shape of common animals, which would express something from the monk's minds. For example, if a monk had a fear of spiders, the tulpa created might approach a spider fearlessly, showing there is nothing to fear, or otherwise demonstrate how pointless such a fear was. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, so... So it's almost a therapeutic, almost like cognitive behavioural therapy in a way. Yeah, yeah. Alternatively, the tulpa might have spoken or expressed more abstract ideas. In either case, the monks would meditate on the experience and the tulpa would disappear once their purpose had been served. Oh, so there's a very much a thought of um, like a servant-master relationship in a way. Yeah. I, I was thinking of more of a, a helpful guide that is kind of there until... Oh, you, yeah, okay. I mean, if you think of it in therapeutic terms, it's very much like a therapist, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They help you get through one issue and then they disappear if, if they've done their job properly. Right, right. So whether you take a more psychological, scientific explanation or a more spiritual view like the Buddhist approach, it looks like creating a tulpa can be useful, even therapeutic. I kept thinking about the online manual that details how to be a tulpamancer and I just kept getting those reminders of when we went through the CIA and American military remote viewing manual. How going through that manual and working with Daz Smith, we got better at remote viewing, I think. Oh, very much. And I thought maybe, Ben, we could try a similar approach with our TQM tulpa project. Ah, sort of get a bit more formal with it. Yeah, try to improve our chances of creating Sherlock Holmes. Okay. Or I, I should say from reading the paper, a Sherlock Holmes influence tulpa, because yeah. each person who will create it, I think, would create something Sherlock-esque, but unique to them, I think. Yeah, that's true, that's true. And, and I kept coming back to that fact that, you know, our listener Faye, who had the best results so far, she put in some serious work, and that seemed to pay off with her brief sighting of an actual Sherlock. Yes, yes. It's really funny that um, 
when you start putting it in that way, we might we'll, we'll go to the, the things. But um, when you're talking about those monks, what was just going through my head was, I did do some um, Sherlock Holmes manifesting over the holidays. But um, oh. really weirdly, I I love marzipan. And nobody else in my house, well, I was only my partner and my dog. Right. And only one of those has the ability to go out and buy marzipan. We didn't have any marzipan, and I was really longing for Battenberg cake. So I was imagining my Sherlock Holmes carried Battenberg cake in his pocket because I didn't really want to imagine the drugs paraphernalia. That's not really... <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the pipe, sure, but not really the drugs paraphernalia. Yeah. So I started thinking that he'd have, like, a pocket full of Battenberg cake. Oh, so I've already added some bits to that, but it's because... I wish I could eat Battenberg cake right. with impunity. Yeah. And my, my tulpa can. That's interesting. I, I, I've got this vision of Sherlock with Battenberg cake in a, for some reason in a paper bag. Yes, he does have it in a paper bag. <laughs> okay. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and I think when he takes it out, he's already got it neatly sliced so that he can yeah. share it. Yes. Slightly waxy paper. Very waxy paper, yes. Oh, that's really weird. Well, that is exactly, you know, just going through the manual, the kind of thing, you're doing the right thing. So maybe this is a good time. Maybe we, what we should do is summarise a bit of that Tolpa manual here and see if our listeners and us could have another crack at creating a Sherlock Tolpa or our own Sherlock Tolpa. Yeah. And if you're not fancying Sherlock, I guess you could try another character. Mm-hmm. Nothing too dark, though. No, nothing too dark. Something friendly and nice. I thought, yeah, it might be a fun thing to do. The starting point is, just to summarise, like remote viewing, trying to keep an open mind and filter out your brain noise. Start by thinking about and writing down the traits of the tulpa you want to create. So if it's Sherlock, it could be words like logical, determined, you know, just, whatever you want. Think about as many as you can. Then move on to the pre-creation phase. So sit down in a comfortable position Close your eyes and begin to try and imagine your tulpa. Think about some of your tulpa's traits with keywords that we've worked on, like in Sherlock's case, intelligence, intense, whatever. Once you've got a feel for it, say the tulpa's name and begin to talk to it. Now, at this stage, don't expect to hear or see your tulpa. You're kind of setting a scene, greeting it, if you like. That's, that's how the process is supposed to go. Then start to expand out that work that you've done, thinking more about the keywords and personality of your tulpa. After you've achieved the next part of the process is known as visualisation. Sit comfortably with your back straight and your hands in front of you motionless. Close your eyes, breathe slowly. Imagine you're sitting in front of your tulpa. Imagine you're both in a comfortable setting. I guess in the case of Sherlock, you could be in 221B Baker Street. A couple of nice armchairs. Again, focus on the tulpa's appearance, maybe their mannerisms. Part three of the process is smell, which will help the visualisation. Very so, marzipan-y. Mar- yeah, in your case, <laughs> marzipan and tobacco smoke. Um, part four, movement expression. How does your tulpa move and what expressions does it make? Part five, emotions sentient, which really involves talking to your tulpa, which may or may not give you a response and you shouldn't try and force one. And then hopefully your tulpa will start communicating with you or even maybe materialised. Now, there were some do's and don'ts that I found in the manual which are worth pointing out. Although these are good. Don't treat your tulpa like a doll. So I think, you know, treat it with respect, basically. 
Remove all traces of doubt from your mind, again, like we did with remote viewing. Give your tulpa love and attention. Create trust between you and your tulpa. Be patient. Don't rush things. Your, t- your tulpa will progress as its own schedule, not yours. Feed it. Yeah. So, I don't know, if you fancy having a crack at that, again, it makes me feel that we should have a no... It sounds like you've been doing a bit of work over Christmas, but expanding out, trying to follow that process. And I thought maybe the listeners out there and us could maybe keep a diary. Um, And, you know, if you want to let us know if you have any results from this via social media, uh, just tell us what your experience is like for you, even if nothing happens. So... You can find us at Facebook at TQM Podcast or Twitter um, and let us know how it goes. Now, from the research I've done, this should be safe. But as with all these things, if it doesn't feel right or starts to feel a little scary, just stop. Oh, yeah. Remember, this is something you are creating out there. It's not an evil spirit or a presence. I, I think we should give it another go, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think it's worth it because... It was such fun last year and people had a lot of fun with it. Now you've uncovered an actual um, sort of manuscript which describes how to do it. And um, a guy from Harvard actually gave it a go. Yeah, and, and was, was you know, came away thinking there's more to this than just, you know, some, some psychological process. Yeah. Well, I think it'd be quite fascinating if anyone's in the audience who, you know, is maybe writing a children's book, or it doesn't have to be a children's book, a book, and they fancy trying to manifest one of their characters and seeing if that talks back to them to give them some dialogue. That would be fascinating. Because, of course, Sherlock Holmes is just one man's character. Yeah, yeah. You could all come up with a character. Yeah. That would, that would, I'd love to know about that as well, because that seems to be, you know, though he was doing Ernest Hemingway, that was because he had a muse. You've probably got your own muse. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading um, Megan Mogg to um, one of my little nieces and nephews over Christmas. It'd be pretty difficult to um, do a tulpa of Mogg, but I'll give it a go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's um, it's reminded me a bit that the I know the, the remote um, viewing parallels also come in the way that we've done this like remote viewing we did our tqm tolpa project and then researched it after we'd done it and then we can fine-tune it but that's fine that works well, we, we had some tolpa stories before but i hadn't gone down that yeah that route yeah um no that's yeah let's do that because uh next week i've uncovered something crazy about some ink that makes you see demons oh, and wow. it's not poison. So it's going to be something completely different. So wow. let's get the nice stuff out of the way this week. Cool. Excellent. All right. Well, let's, yeah. Well, let's, um, it was fascinating. We're, 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 this, we had the TQM Tulpa project. Maybe the phase two is the TQM Tulpa Mancy project. Yeah. Let's all be Tulpa Mancy. Yeah. We're making that on a business card. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can't make it, but my Tulpa can. Yes, brilliant. Oh, my God, yes. That's what I want him for. Yeah. He can go to all those places that I'm invited to, and I'm like, oh, I don't really want to go. Yeah, oh, a four-hour Zoom meeting, my Tulpa can go. <laughs> You're on mute. Um, we, um, we've got some uh, new Patreons, have, have we not? We were, we, we, we had some Patreon activity over the Christmas break. We did, we did. If you want to help the show out, patreon.com forward slash TQM pod. We would love to have you there. Yes, and we, um, 
uh, we release our podcasts early with our ads there. We do other little bits and pieces. And uh, oh, I guess the other thing that um, some people might not know, we did post it on social media. Um, we did guest on uh, the Lawmen podcast on Boxing Day, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes, uh, we did. Uh, we did a, some bizarre stuff about their pigmas, which. It's kind of pig Christmas. So if you've not seen that, if you go to the Lawman podcast, we're checking them out anyway because they're really, really brilliant. Um, but yes, we were on Boxing Day uh, as guests on that show and it was really good fun. Perfect. And and Patreons, so we get new yes, Patreons. Cindy and Lisa, thank you so much for joining us over the Christmas oh, period. thank you. You are now part of um, our weird little uh, Topamassi club. Yeah. And uh, as long as that doesn't scare you, um, we're very, very happy to have you along. And uh, whether you are a patron or not, you're all part of the club. But if you can help to uh, give the show a boost, it's really, really appreciated. We've already allocated um, all of our money investment this year into what we're going to do with the show. Yep. So um, it's going to a very worthwhile cause if you think the show is a worthwhile cause. I hope you do. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Um, and once again, thank you for all your uh, kind words and thoughts over the Christmas period with me being ill. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. So let's get through this dull January yes. by doing some paranormal uh, necromancy. Not necromancy. Oh, no, to- don't, don't do that. No, no, no. <laughs> it's totally the opposite of that. Topomancy. Yeah, topomancy. Yeah, necromancy is very different. Yeah. Um, and we'll be back next week with some very, very, very peculiar stories. Cool. Excellent. Well, we'll see you next week. See Take ya. care. Bye. Bye. the quantum mechanics